Well, good morning, and it's a joy to have the privilege to share in God's Word with you all this morning. So as we turn now to hear from the Lord, let's go to Him and ask Him once more to speak with us, to help us, and to guide us in this time that we have together. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, Father, that we would not merely come simply to read and to understand better what you have said, but Lord, help us to be doers of your word. Lord, help us as we come to understand what the Lord Jesus has said to be those who are ready to walk in obedience. Those who are ready to walk in ascribing the value and worth and glory that is due only His name. And Lord, we pray ultimately that this would bring You glory. So Father, may You receive glory in this time. May we be strengthened and helped and encouraged, Lord, even convicted where we ought to be in this time. And help me now, Lord, to be one who ministers and preaches your word faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's no surprise probably to most of us that we live in a world today that loves to talk about being inclusive. It's pretty often that we find leaders or public officials patting themselves on the back publicly on the way that they love everybody. The way that they want everyone to feel as though they belong. But I think as much as sort of leaders and influencers may say that they value including everyone, we still live in a very exclusive society. And, and I'm not even here to necessarily say that that is a bad thing. Consider just practical day-to-day living, like being a membership, being a member at Costco. What does it take to be a member of Costco? Well, you've got to pay your dues. There's people who you come to the door, you've got to show your ID card, you get in, but then you've got to pay annually, right? If you're going to continue to enjoy the free samples that are there, you've got to be a paying member. Or a country club. Again, annual dues. Monthly membership expenses. Perhaps you have to be part of a certain network or know a certain kind of person to have the connection to get in. Or live in a certain area of town. Even to be part of the military. There are basic fitness requirements that somebody must meet. Maybe running a mile at a certain speed or doing a certain amount of push-ups and sit-ups, etc. 
It's a reality that we can't escape. We live in a world filled with organizations where there are members and non-members. Those who belong, those who do not. Those who are in, those who are out. Those who have right of entrance and those who are turned away. And it's the same reality with the kingdom of God. Jesus came teaching and preaching that the kingdom of God is an exclusive reality. In other words, not everyone is in the kingdom of God. There are some who are able to enter who would be surprised to hear that they're able to enter. And then there are some who, on the other hand, think that they belong, who come to find out they never knew the Lord Jesus. And the reason, I think, that so many people in the day of Jesus' teaching and preaching were shocked by His words was because the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God is so radically, fundamentally different often than the things that we require in our earthly organizations today. In the earthly programs or things that we organize around here on this earth. Far from paying membership dues or having a sort of needed status or demonstrating a certain level of physical fitness, Jesus was concerned with something totally different than the things that we often value and look upon. Well, what was it? What is it exactly that Jesus taught gives somebody entrance into His kingdom? What do His kingdom citizens look like? Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is where we will be this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 28, and this week is where we'll be taking a break from our regular series in the book of Genesis, and we're returning to an ongoing series that is uh, exploring parables that Jesus tells, kingdom parables that He tells in the book of Matthew. Parables, as we've learned in weeks past, are sort of simply put, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And that's certainly true of the two stories that we will look at this morning. Well, as you turn to Matthew chapter 21, before we pick up in our passage, we need to notice a couple things that are going on when Jesus tells these parables. First, we need to see and be reminded of, of where Jesus is in His ministry. The, the beginning of chapter 21 is what some would refer to and call Jesus' triumphal entry. And, and what it is, is Jesus is coming into the center of Jewish worship, Jerusalem. 
He, he enters there, and Jesus has maybe a few surprising tricks up his sleeve when he gets up there. The, the first thing is that when people line up to praise Jesus as he comes in, they're, they're calling out, Hosanna, save us now. They're rightfully ascribing to him, calling him the Messiah, the son of David. Save us now, son of David. Well, the, the thing that may be surprising to some is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the crowds. Well, it certainly surprises the religious leaders. But then shortly after his triumphal entry, he goes to the temple. And you would imagine that maybe after coming into this place of worship and people calling him the Messiah, he's going to get up and preach a wonderful sermon, an inaugural address maybe. Well, Jesus instead goes into the temple and he starts throwing things around. He turns tables over, literally, emptying out bags of money, driving out the people who had made business out of that place being the center of worship. The people in that day instead were going to the temple, instead of going to the temple to draw near to God, were going to the temple to pad their pockets. And Jesus would have none of it. Well, it's that incident that then provokes some religious leaders to then come up and address Jesus. They have some questions for him. And it's not exactly a friendly inquiry. This is just sort of the latest of many things that Jesus had done to offend and upset them. And that's where we find ourselves in our passage, right in the middle of sort of this tense conversation. At the beginning of the conversation, the passage right before the one where we read, the leaders ask Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And so Jesus, instead of answering their question outright, he turns it around on them. He says, no, 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 I've got a question for you. Where did the authority of John the Baptist come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And the religious leaders, because they fear the crowds, totally balk at the question and just say, we don't know, trying to save their skin. And then Jesus, he's not going to let them pass on it. He's going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to answer you, your question to me, but I've got a couple stories for you. So listen in. And so the main idea as we come to these parables then, the main idea that I think comes out of them is this, that true kingdom members believe the king's messengers and bear kingdom fruit. So if we were to sort of distill these two stories down to one main idea, it would be this, true kingdom members believe the king's messengers and bear kingdom fruit. First, we must believe the king's Messengers, this is picking up in verse 28. Jesus begins, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. His son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. 
The son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? The religious leaders answered, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, this first parable that Jesus tells is sort of short and to the point. Jesus tells the story of a father and his two sons, likely younger in age, who sort of in this largely agrarian society in that day, would, it would have been the responsibility of these sons to help their father in the vineyard. It, it would have been customary for a father to go and request for help from his sons with the workload and to help with the profit of the family business. And so he goes to the first son, and Jesus describes this first son, and to the audience's surprise, this son refuses to help his father. This, no doubt, would have been a scandal in that day, especially in a Jewish household, household where, where obedience was expected. Not to mention sort of this regular assumption in the community that it was the responsibility of the entire family to look out for the welfare of the family. Likely, if we were listening among the crowds as Jesus shares this detail, we would have heard audible gasps. People shocked that a son would show such betrayal to his father. But the tension gets resolved pretty quickly. We aren't told exactly how, but the young man has a change of mind. He changes his mind and he eventually goes and helps his father in the vineyard just as his father had asked. And then we're told about the second son. Now the second son gives the answer that the audience is expecting, the answer that maybe we would expect. He responds respectfully. I go, sir. You know, that, that word even used for sir, translated, it, it can be more literally translated Lord. It's, it's a title of respect and showing honor to one's superior. The father, no doubt, when he receives his son's response, would have been pleased with his son's words. But come to find out, the son with this respectful answer, the right answer, doesn't end up doing what he says he will do. He says, I go. He never actually goes. He leaves his father high and dry with no help. Then as soon as the story began, the story's over. And now Jesus interjects with a question of his own. Who actually did the will of his father? 
And the answer, I think, is simple enough that even a child would get it. And the religious leaders answer correctly. They respond, the first. And now Jesus has sort of drawn out this common ground of agreement between he and the religious leaders, and he's about to pull some spiritual jujitsu on them. So when I say that, you might go, what's jujitsu? Jujitsu is this form of martial arts where you take your opponent's movements and their advances of attack, and you take their momentum and you use it against them. Well, Jesus has just been given the ammo that he needs to go on the attack here to explain that these religious leaders have just indicted themselves. He says to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus, in an effort to help these religious elite to see that they are indeed the second brother in the story, he turns their attention back to John the Baptist the initial question at hand, the very person whose ministry they refused to recognize right before this. And he makes it plain that John's ministry is from heaven. But that's not where he stops. He doesn't simply stop with where John's ministry came from. Jesus makes a beeline to the very heart of what it means to be part of God's people whether one is in the kingdom of God or not. Jesus essentially says, you know, the worst sinners that you can even imagine, they are entering the kingdom of God before you are. You guys, you think you're in the kingdom? You think... You're part of God's people because Abraham's your father? You think that you're close to the kingdom because of your outward religious rituals? You think that you're first in line because of your zeal? You're not even in, light, in the right line. You've lined up in the wrong place. Your confidence it's all wrong. Now, some of us, maybe if we're familiar with our Bibles, may not be all that surprised as we read this, right? Maybe it's familiarity has sort of washed away that initial shock and surprise that we would get from a story like this. But this would have been a massive shock to the crowds as they listened to this confrontation. Think about who these religious leaders were. They were known for their sacrifice. They were known for their attendance regularly in the synagogue. 
They were known for their generous giving, their pious prayers, their devoted discipline in fasting. These were Bible people, y'all. They were insistent that the books of Moses be read and revered and honored. And so, Jesus, you're telling me that they're not in the kingdom? Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, what about you? What do you think it takes to get into the kingdom of God? Is it being a good person? Not stealing, cheating, lying. Perhaps how one gets into the kingdom of God is a question that you just don't really even think about all that much. You know, it's easier today, probably more than any other time in history, to virtually go throughout our day-to-day without ever even having a thought about God's kingdom, about spiritual realities of death and eternal consequences, especially, maybe especially, when you live in a city like Charlotte. You know, we live in this affluent city where there's nice people and nice cars and nice houses and nice neighborhoods and nice vacations and nice food and nice buildings and nice businesses and nice drinks and nice weekends. And it's easy for one's vision of eternal realities to get blurred by a fixation on the temporal, isn't it? Well, have you grown numb to the awesome reality of God's kingdom? And if you do recognize that there is such a reality, do you know how one enters? You know, I mentioned earlier that we humans, we love to draw our dividing lines around things that we value. Money, possessions, status, talent, skill, recognition, outer appearances, even our good deeds. But according to Jesus, those dividing lines are entirely foreign when it comes to being in or out of the kingdom. And y'all very easily even Christians can start to sort of let these earthly markers become what we lean on to define ourselves among others. We can even let these earthly markers creep in and become our confidence of what it means to stand before the Lord, the righteous judge. But you see, the kingdom of God is so unlike the way that we think. It's so different than our value system entirely. 
Y'all, the kingdom of God, it's simultaneously the most inclusive thing in the world and the most exclusive thing in the world. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it's inclusive in that. Look who's included here in this story. The tax collectors and the prostitutes? Are you kidding me, Jesus? They're in the kingdom? But these religious leaders who were known for their external good behavior, they're not in. Well, how is it that these people are in and those people are out? Ultimately, it comes down to listening to the kingdom message. Believing the kingdom messengers. Belief. That's the marker. Did these people here in this story, did they hear and heed what John the Baptist said? Well, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they did. Jesus isn't saying that theft and sexual immorality is just sort of no big deal. He's not saying that, but he's saying, hey, these people listened. They heard that the kingdom of God was at hand, and they turned away from their sins. They turned away from their sort of putting on this external righteous behavior, and they confessed their sins, and they came to the Lord, and they said, we need you, Lord. We're here waiting for your kingdom, waiting for your Messiah, waiting for your sent one. The tax collectors and the prostitutes heard it and believed. But the religious leaders kept hiding. You think your good works, your heritage, your externally good behavior will somehow get you into the kingdom? You're mistaken. That passport is no good. The king wants your heart. He wants all of you. Your whole being. He wants you to lean on him. He wants you to love him truly. He wants you to trust his promises. Well, what does that believing look like? Well, Jesus isn't done yet. He's got more. He's got another story. Let's turn to it now, picking up in verse 33. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And he dug a wine press. And he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, the master sent out servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Secondly, we see here from this parable that we must bear kingdom fruit. Citizens of the kingdom are those who bear kingdom fruit. Verse 33, Jesus says, hear another parable. That, that word here, it's, it's a command, it's an imperative. You know, probably because at the end of the previous section of Jesus' talking, I would imagine the religious leaders are probably tempted to check out at that point. Right? He's had some harsh words for them. But Jesus says, hold on, hold on. I'm not done yet. Listen up. He tells the story of a master. This master plants a vineyard, puts a lot of effort into improving the value of the place, and he builds a fence and a wine press and a tower, and and then he puts servants, tenants, in charge of keeping the grounds, of harvesting the produce and ensuring that the yield here is profitable. And the master leaves for a time, and Then we're told that when harvest time comes, he sends his servants to go and to collect the fruit that the land produced, that the tenants were responsible to oversee. But to the surprise of the master, the tenants turn on him. They turn out to be not very helpful tenants at all. When the servants arrive to connect, they beat one of the servants. They stone one and they kill another. This this behavior, no doubt, would have been unacceptable at the time. And as a good and right response, the, the master could have had those tenants executed on charges of murder in the very first place. But notice the patience of the master. Verse 36 Still, he sent more servants, more than the first, but the tenants treated them the same. The patience of the master is met with further digging in the heels of these tenants' rebellion. They continue to wreak havoc, total disregard for the reason why they were enlisted in this service. They've betrayed and acted treasonously against 
their master, and they have no regard for the master's wishes. They act insanely, knowing that they're only digging themselves in a deeper pit. But again, how does the master respond? Patience. Yet a third time, he sends a delegate. This time, it's his beloved son. Surely, surely the master reasons, they will respect my son. Tragically, his son is treated worse than the slaves. He's thrown out of the vineyard, killed. And Jesus, just like the previous parable, finishes telling the story and he asks the religious leaders, can you fill in the rest? He asks, what do you think happens when the master comes? And they fill in the story quite naturally. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? This stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus' response have you never read, is this open-handed rebuke that they have neglected the very scriptures they were responsible to know and to interpret. They've misunderstood it. It would kind of be like today asking a surgeon, don't you know what a scalpel is? Here is Jesus' jujitsu move number two. Jesus agrees. These tenants have acted corruptly, abysmally. They have failed in their responsibility. And the patience of the master has run out. And there's about to be a shift in who will be the stewards of this kingdom. You know, I think it's important for us to see and to know and to point out God's unfolding history in this time and the way that the nation of Israel played into it. Israel was God's specially redeemed people. He brought them out of Egypt and God's kingdom was to be mediated specially through the religious leaders in the nation of Israel at that time. That, that's exactly why this vineyard story is even here. It's hearkening back to images that we get from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, if you'd like to go and read that a little bit later. The Lord himself speaks through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah and helps the people to understand in Israel they are a vineyard. And their responsibility is to produce fruit that gives glory to the Lord, but it never yielded the fruit that it needed to. And in part, we see because of the failure of Israel's leaders. 
Things became so grotesque, so incredibly corrupt, that the Lord Himself says, enough is enough. I'm going to usher in a new administration. But something we cannot afford to miss here, in this parable, Jesus makes it clear that mysteriously, wonderfully, marvelously, this was the Lord's plan all along. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And see how this stone is now the very dividing line for all of humanity. Either one has put their trust in this stone, embraced this stone as a foundation, or ultimately the stone will crush whoever it falls on. Well, this stone is a reference to Jesus Himself. It's a play on words even, hearkening back to the Son that was rejected in the parable. And so it rightly refers to Jesus. And so though veiled in the moment with Jesus' confrontation, Jesus is coming to the people and He's saying, I'm the Son who's been sent to the vineyard. I'm right here in Jerusalem. I am here at the center point for the worship of the land of Israel and rather identify and revere and serve me and give the honor that is due to the Father? You know what you're about to do. And we read about what happened to our Lord Jesus. He was rejected, taken out of the temple courts, taken out of the city and nailed to a cross of wood. But Jesus says, in my death, God is carrying out His plan of laying a foundation for a new people. A people that will bear the fruit that God requires. Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was put to death for our sins. Y'all, this is the message that the kingdom messengers came to proclaim. And that must be believed that God Himself, He's concerned with our hearts. He wants our hearts, and our problem is not a behavior problem merely. Our problem is a heart problem fundamentally. We love the wrong things. We prefer God's things instead of God. We want the inheritance that the Son had, just like the tenants. And so we reject God. The tenants didn't really have a regard for the master. We're concerned with, we just want the master's stuff. Rather than desiring and loving and enjoying God, the giver, 
We want his gifts as an ultimate thing. And so rather than fix ourselves, we need somebody to come and give us a new heart to change us from the inside out. We need God himself to change us. And the only way that something like that could happen, a change like that is even possible, is if a sin-bearing sacrifice would come and cancel our record of debt. Our record of debt before the Lord would send us to the same destination that these tenants deserve. But Jesus himself went and bore what those tenants deserved. He was the one who was taken out. He was the one who endured a miserable death so that wicked tenants could turn and come to him. So that they could turn and come and be part of the kingdom by believing. By believing that this message is indeed true. That Christ himself, he is my only way into the kingdom. That Christ's life, my life, is is no good. His life is what I need for my right of entrance into this kingdom. He himself is my righteousness. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The cross of Jesus Christ, then, is the enabling source for kingdom fruit among kingdom people. The cross of Jesus Christ is the enabling source for God's people. So Jesus' challenge to the religious leaders is also the same challenge for us today, y'all. He is calling us to the difficult way of living openly before God. Producing genuine, from-the-heart fruit. Not trying to staple apples onto dead trees like the religious leaders did. To produce genuine, from-the-heart love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus is the ultimate heart surgeon here, and he knows that what keeps the religious leaders from the kingdom of heaven, it's not their tithing or their feasts or their washings. It's what's in their hearts. And it's the same for you and I. What keeps us from entrance into the kingdom is what's in our hearts. We need God to give us new hearts. And so what that means for us, number one, don't cover up anymore. Don't hide your broken, bad, even ugly insides with a bunch of religiosity that's just building more walls between you and God. You can't fool Him. He sees it all. He knows every thought. You can fool men, but you cannot fool God. Instead, we are called to live openly before the gaze of our Lord. 
to know that He sees our every thought, to be open to God fully and to admit regularly, Lord, I am broken. I am not whole. There's inconsistency in my life. There's disorder even. And I know that you care most fundamentally about my heart. And in the context of him welcoming you into the kingdom as you trust the Lord Jesus, there is so much freedom found in being completely honest before the Lord. And that pushes us to transparency even with one another. There is the place of freedom. And that is why Jesus came. That we would be whole. That we would believe the kingdom message. And that we would bear true, from the heart, from the source, kingdom fruit for him. Well, finally, verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, in the same way that Jesus let the religious leaders fill out the answer to his previous parables. The religious leaders here are left with a choice to make. They can write the ending. They can turn and embrace Jesus as the rightful king that he is. Or they can reject him. And the same is true for us. If you don't know Jesus, my encouragement to you is don't let the fear of what other people will think keep you from coming to Him. You see how crippling the fear of man is to these religious leaders. Not just in the first parable, but in the second. Don't settle for simply looking good on the outside. Come to Him. Come to Jesus. He invites you. All who are weak and who are heavy laden, I have rest for your souls. He gives us true, inward, to the very core, heart rest. He is a good and gracious king. Let's pray.